At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, Joe Neal, hosting this today with a very special co-host, Dr. Hannah Thurger. We will be co-hosting more of these podcasts in the future as long as it goes well today. So I've known Hannah for a while now as she did her PhD at the University of Manchester, which is where I work. And very topically for the subject of today's podcast and our very special guest today, Hannah's PhD was in neuroscience, specifically the role of inflammation in brain disorders. Hannah is now a senior research officer at Drug Science. We have a brilliant guest today for you folks, Dr. Charles Raison, and he has an awful lot to teach us about depression, as he is a world expert. He's written a book on the topic with Vladimir Malatek, The New Mind-Body Science of Depression. So I highly recommend you rush out and buy that, folks. It looks excellent. I'm going to get it. And we're really excited that he's here to discuss various aspects of depression. So the interaction of the immune system with depression and different approaches to therapy, including interventions such as meditation, heat treatment, and psychedelic-assisted therapy. And I'm guessing much else as well. Charles is the Director of Research on Spiritual Health at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, interestingly, for a psychiatrist and a scientist, Charles originally studied anthropology and then English literature before he embarked on his medical career, becoming a psychiatrist and working in an inpatient unit. But he is currently academic and based at a number of universities. So very warm welcome to you, Charles. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I'm going to hand over to Hannah and she's going to to start the questions. All right. Great. Thank you, Joe. And it's an absolute pleasure to be hosting the podcast with you here today. So, Charles, I know you have a really interesting career background, and I'd love just to hear how you progressed from anthropology and English literature. And what was your decision that led you to study in medicine? It is interesting. I had a terrible, I still do actually have a pretty robust needle phobia. I don't like medical environments very much. I never did. So I just, you know, was too scared of blood and needles to ever think about med school. Went to college, didn't really know what I wanted to study, but always had this sort of interest at the intersection of like human behavior and philosophy. And so came into anthropology and thought about getting a PhD in anthropology. I just, I just, it didn't quite fit right. I, I thought I wanted to be a writer. My, my family had owned a small newspaper for a hundred years and I'd kind of grown up in the journalism business. So I did a stint as a journalism for a couple of years and then actually then got into a creative writing program where I learned that I did not have the uh, the talent to become a, a fiction writer. And so it was at this really sort of, I was 25, 26, and was at this real crossroads in my life. I, I had been married early and the marriage was breaking up and I was really at a loss for what to do. I knew I wasn't going to make it as a writer. And so I had this really kind of wild epiphany on December 24th, 1984. So, I mean, I remember exactly. I was on a highway in Texas, South Texas, heading towards Houston. And I had started going to psychotherapy myself for the first time in my life and I found it really helpful. And it started reading. I was in an English PhD program and had been exposed for the first time to Freud and gotten really interested in this idea of trying to interpret human behavior. And I had one of these wild, sort of completely probably illogical things where I said, I'm going to go be a psychiatrist. Had no idea how to do that. I'd managed to dodge most science classes in college. But when I got to Houston, I remember getting out of the car at the, at the shopping center, and that was it. That's what I was going to do. And so that's what I did. I had to go back. I had to take science classes. I had to 
convince people to let me into medical school because I didn't really have much of a medical background, but I did well. And I thought I wanted to be a therapist. And that's really, I went to med school to be a therapist, to be a psychoanalyst. Discovered I didn't really, therapy was not really my strong suit, but ended up as a clinical faculty person at UCLA in California. And that's how I came to be, you know, Joe, as you mentioned, I, I ran part of an inpatient service and I, I worked with really, really seriously mentally ill people, you know, real, you know, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. And that was where I was at until I then transitioned into being a researcher, which I guess we could talk about. And that happened in the sort of late mid 90s. And so your research is something I'd love to hear more about. I mean, I've got a background in inflammation and I've always been very interested in how inflammation can be both beneficial and detrimental in different disease states, disorders, and also in, in maintaining health. Could you tell us a bit about the role of inflammation and the immune system and that connection with depression? Yeah. So I share your interest, actually. It's very interesting. This has been a long-term interest of mine. You know, you'd mentioned in the introduction, you know, or we were talking, I think, at least about heat. I, I got into inflammation because I was interested in body temperature, and there's a really fascinating story there. But, you know, I just was lucky. I landed at Emory University in Atlanta in 1999, and my mentor, a gentleman named Andrew Miller, who really is, I think, personally, the world leader in this in inflammation in the psychiatric space, was just getting started on this. And he had been a hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis guy and had spent a long time thinking about cortisol and thinking about the fact that people with depression often had elevated levels of cortisol, but they seemed resistant to cortisol. And he was wondering, you know, it, there was something about that, that paradox just ate at him. And he realized that inflammation might be an explanatory mechanism for it, that, you know, inflammation is suppressed generally by cortisol, but it can also induce resistance to cortisol. So he was really early on at this idea that maybe depression was an inflammatory condition. And I sort of landed right there and began, you know, sort of doing research with him. And they had done early work at Emory using this very interesting and sort of tragic model system. There was a, there, it's a chemical in the body called interferon alpha. It's, a, it's an immune chemical that's especially important for viral infections. But it had been developed as a drug. And people used very high doses of interferon as a rather ineffective treatment for cancer, especially malignant melanoma. But it offered this really natural experiment that, you know, folks that were not depressed, but that had a probably fatal melanoma would voluntarily inject themselves with huge amounts of inflammation for a chronic period. And already in the 1990s, this drug was infamous for causing depression. So Andy Miller got this very, very brilliant idea of trying to see if he gave people an antidepressant before they started the interferon, could he prevent the depression? And they did that. They randomized people to an antidepressant or placebo pre-treatment, and then boom, people started taking the, the interferon. And he published a, a very famous paper, I think, in New England Journal of Medicine showing that the, that the antidepressant actually protected people from getting depressed when they got interferon. So this was sort of the, the study that launched a thousand ships. And so we started working with interferon as a model system. We started looking at people with hepatitis C and trying to figure out, you know, if I know that you are in a non-inflamed state now, you've got hepatitis C, but you know, you're, you're not grossly inflamed. I can measure up as many things as I can think of in your body and brain now. And then I know on Friday that you're going to start getting this drug that's going to jack up your inflammation. So I can actually measure you beforehand, let the inflammation do its bad deeds, and then measure you, you know, say a month or two afterwards and look to see, you know, so you got, you know, your depression went up, what changed in your body and brain that might be associated with it. And so we did a series of studies. And the short answer is that pretty much everything that has been Sort many things that have been implicated in depression turn out to be influenced by inflammation. So you can make a list of abnormalities that in general sort of track with people that are depressed. And we saw that interferon tended to do all these things. So this gave us the very logical idea that maybe major depression was in fact an inflammatory condition. And if it was an inflammatory condition, the obvious next step to do would be to see if we gave people a really powerful anti-inflammatory agent who were depressed, would it work as an antidepressant? 
And this took some doing. And it took me pushing Andy a little bit on this because at the time it seemed like such a wild idea. But eventually we got one of the companies to give us a drug that in the United States was marketed as Remicade. It's infliximab. It's one of these very, very specific and powerful anti-inflammatory blockers. It blocks a, an inflammatory chemical called TNF, tumor necrosis factor. And you know basically it doesn't do anything in the body except just boom turns off inflammation. So it was a beautiful drug to use because it didn't have any off-target effects like aspirin and ibuprofen. They do all sorts of things in the brain and body that are not directly related to inflammation. This was just, we're going to turn off inflammation and see what happens. So we did this study where we recruited people that had failed previous antidepressant studies. They were not, they didn't have like an inflammatory condition. They were just depressed. And we had two theories going into it. One was that it would work as an antidepressant because we wrongly thought that major depression was an inflammatory condition. And then two, we figured that, you know, if it's blocking inflammation and that's what's making you undepressed, the more inflamed you were before you started the treatment, the better response you should get. And we were about two thirds of the way through the study. We had not broken the blind. So we, we didn't know who'd gotten what yet. And Miller and I had gone out and had a drink and, and we actually got quite emotional because what we were seeing was that this huge percentage of patients was ha were having these amazing response. I mean, they were, these were folks that wow. failed all this stuff and they were, you know, we were just like, wow, right? Were you measuring, um, were and you so we using, just, sorry, Charles, to address, were you using scales yeah. to measure the amount of depression? And oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. This was a very, very formal study. It, it, it's published in JAMA Psychiatry. It really was quite impactful. But we figured that we'd invented this whole new depression treatment. We finished the study. We broke the blinds. So we could see who got what. And it turned out that the salt water was a much better antidepressant than the $2,000 a pop anti-inflammatory agent. So, you know, one of the things that is endlessly fascinating is mm -hmm. the placebo response in depression. And because, you know, the salt water was administered with a lot of falderol. You know, we had people in a special chair and you had to have a crash cart because sometimes people would have bad reactions to the infliximab. So salt water delivered under those circumstances is a powerful antidepressant. And this was quite striking that, in fact, numerically, the salt water did better than infliximab. That was our first theory, and it was, or our first hypothesis was, was disproven. But we found a perfect linear relationship between how inflamed people were before they started the treatment and how much better they got on the infliximab versus the salt water, such that... If you had high levels of inflammation, now again, these are people that are, they're not sick as far as we know, but they're depressed and they have, there's about a third of depressed people that have sort of higher levels of inflammation. The higher the inflammation, the bigger the antidepressant drop with the infliximab. But there were many people in the study who were just as depressed that had low levels of inflammation and they actually did worse with the infliximab. They, they did better with salt water. So this was a really important clue that inflammation, if you took all of our work together, it looked like inflammation caused depression, but that depression was not an inflammatory disorder, that inflammation is a pathway in some people to getting depressed. But there's all sorts of ways to get depressed. And in fact, there are many people with low levels of inflammation and depression. So Hannah, to your point, this caused Andy and I to revise how we were thinking about things. And it's interesting, he and I went different directions. He did the very logical thing, frankly, and the, probably the, the strategically smarter thing was, was he said, whoa, people with elevated inflammation have a different response to blocking their inflammation in the body. So maybe they're a different subpopulation of depressed people. So he's done an amazing series of studies with neuroimaging and spinal taps and looking and showing that if you take, you know, let's say you and Joe are just equally depressed. I give you a scale, you got the same score, but your inflammation is up just measured by something like, like C-reactive protein in the body. So Hannah, your inflammation's up. Joe, your inflammation's down. You, Hannah, have a different, your, your brain is wired differently. Parts of your brain in the front part are disconnected from the pleasure centers in your brain compared to Joe, who's also depressed. And so it looks like inflammation in some people causes changes in brain functioning that especially promote two sets of symptoms. 
something called anhedonia, which means loss of pleasure. And there's just a really nice data set suggesting that inflammation has, it, it targets, it's got a tropism for a part of the brain called the, the basal ganglia, and especially the ventral striatum, which is the part of the brain that lights up when you do a drug of abuse or when you're happy or when you have sex. So it looks like that area is suppressed by inflammation. And it's interesting to think from evolutionary perspective why that might be. And it looks like that part of the brain is not as connected to the frontal parts of the brain and people that are inflamed and depressed compared to depressed people who aren't. And it's just very, very interesting. You've got these different subsets of people with depression and some will respond to antidepressants and some won't. And that maybe inflammation could act as a potential biomarker for some of these subsets of, of patients. Well, certainly it looks like it's a biomarker for anti-inflammatory treatments. There is an interesting literature. It's got its weaknesses, but there are several studies suggesting that inflammation predicts non-response to antidepressants that are serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So things in the United States, we call them Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft. I know in the UK, different names, but like fluoxetine, peroxetine, sertraline, these agents that are widely used. There's a couple of studies suggesting that if your inflammation is elevated in the body, you don't tend to respond to those, and you're more likely to respond to agents that have some dopamine effects, which fits very nicely with what Andy Miller's done, because th this area of the brain that seems to be suppressed by inflammation is largely dopaminergic in its signaling. It's more complicated than that, but it, dopamine release in that area seems to produce feelings of, of sort of hedonic. You feel good, you're interested, you're active. And it looks like inflammation, it looks like people with increased inflammation maybe have a preferential response to agents that sort of drive that dopamine in that brain area. So it's very interesting. Andy and I have just co-authored, it's really primarily his work, but we've co-authored a paper that just came out a couple of weeks ago in molecular psychiatry called Burning Down the House, where we make this argument that, that psychiatry has continually made the mistake of trying to find one size fits all pharmacologic treatments for depression, when we know perfectly well that depression is not a single thing and that there must be more homogeneous subtypes that we need to identify by relevant biomarkers. And we need to target treatments that address those biomarkers. And inflammation is, is a great example of something where there do seem to be biomarkers. And we do begin, we are beginning to understand that there are specific brain effects. And yet, if you look at most of the studies that have been done looking at anti-inflammatories, they're just done in major depression, you know, kind of writ large, and they don't work. And we shouldn't be surprised they don't work because we know that within depression, there are some people that are going to benefit from an anti-inflammatory, and there's other people that are, they're, they're going to be hurt by it. They should be taking a sugar pill, not an anti-inflammatory. Charles, are there any antidepressants out there that have anti-inflammatory properties? So that that is a tricky literature by my read. It's been looked at a bunch of times, and there are meta-analyses that address that question. And, you know, you know how it is in mental health. You know, they, for every, you know, there's five studies that say yes, there's four mm -hmm. studies that say no. I sometimes say you need to put studies on a scale and see which studies weigh more to try to decide what the truth is. But it's like that. But the overall gestalt suggests that standard antidepressants probably do have modest anti-inflammatory effects, but there really are no compelling data that those effects have any association with their antidepressant properties, right? So if you look at meta-analyses, they would suggest, yes, you know, if you take an antidepressant, in general, it lowers your inflammation a little bit, but that lowering is never statistically associated in any reliable way with you removing your depression. So I don't think that that's how antidepressants work. I think, I think that's the cart before the horse. I think it's where there does seem to be evidence is that if you have inflammation, that inflammation is, is affecting downstream neurotransmitters, not just dopamine, but the, probably all the monoamines and definitely affecting glutamatergic signaling. So if your inflammation's up, it's driving your brain in slightly different ways than if you've got some other reason for being depressed. And certain antidepressants may be better at targeting those downstream effects that are driven by inflammation than others. But thinking about antidepressants as an anti-inflammatory strategy is, to my way of thinking, probably not as productive. Yeah. But is there any progress in clinical practice at stratification of patients in this way? So trying to identify who has 
a pro-inflammatory status and who is you know has low inflammation and treating people accordingly that's always strikes me that's something that we really must do in psychiatry absolutely and again we don't know yet there are large studies now underway funded by national institute of mental health in the u.s that are taking people that have higher levels of inflammation and randomizing them to either get a serotonin agent like an ssri or something that has dopamine activity like bupropion so I think within a couple of years, we will have the kind of larger scale prospective data that might sort of inform us on that. So now there's like two or three studies suggesting that if your CRP is elevated, you're not as likely to respond to an SSRI. And I do a lot of talking at conferences and stuff. And these days I'll say, you know, it's probably worth getting a CRP. It's not conclusive yet, but, you know, if it's elevated and since you're going to start an antidepressant on an empiric basis, just pull one off the shelf anyway, you know. It's a data point that's worth understanding. It's a really good point for our listeners, actually. It's it's worth getting that test. It's a simple blood test, isn't it? It's worth asking yeah, it's for that. Yeah, it's a simple blood test. And and the other point, which I think is also at least equally well established, I think more established, is that blocking inflammation is not a very good anti-depressant strategy for for people just random with depression because there are there are several studies now showing that if you're depressed and your inflammation levels are lower giving somebody an anti-inflammatory even things like omega-3 fatty acids actually they do worse than if you give them placebo and that's what's fascinated me and and Hannah you kind of alluded to this that sometimes inflammation may be good and we've got a, a paper that hopefully not it's going to get accepted, where we looked at hyperthermia, heat, which activates IL-6 really profoundly, just for a short period of time. And IL-6 is, is a inflammatory, mostly inflammatory cytokine that is elevated in depressed populations. So we think of it as a bad guy. And yet in our study, you know, this sort of temporary spike up, the more it goes up, the more undepressed people get over the next couple of weeks. And, you know, exercise activates IL-6. So I've always suspected that it's that, you know, although we started this in many ways, or we're at the beginning of this field that, oh, inflammation's bad and depression's an inflammatory disorder, that in fact, that's not true, that chronic inflammation is probably bad most of the time. And it's probably a cause of depression in a fairly substantial minority of depressed people. But that, that like other stressors, when the exposure is brief and has certain characteristics, it may actually set in motion downstream things that have antidepressant effects, so that it may be a Janus face that way. So, Charles, you mentioned sauna, don't you, in, in your, yeah. your work. So when you're talking about a, a sort of heat exposure, is it a short-term heat exposure? I'm guessing it is if you're in a sauna. You don't want to be in there too yeah. long. No. It is short term, although in our studies where we've shown that that heat has an antidepressant effect, we heat people up pretty hot, 38.5 Celsius, which is 101.3 Fahrenheit. That's really hot if if you're not trying to have a fever. I mean, I've done it. And it's longer than you would probably stay in a sauna without a rectal probe in place and people telling you to hang in there, you know. And our data suggests that there is sort of a graded effect that that you've got to get up to a certain heat to really get the antidepressant effect. And there's clearly an effect, association between the heat and the IL-6. So the hotter you get, the more of this sort of spike of this sort of inflammatory cytokine. Okay. And how long do you have that peak of IL-6 for after a sauna or heat exposure? <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> so we've, we've, only, we've only done one study. We collaborate. There's now a group of us in the U.S. that are sort of heat obsessed. And, and some of them are, some of us are at Harvard. I'm at UW. I'm at Madison in Wisconsin mostly. But there's a group at Harvard. There's a group at UCSF in San Francisco. And so we, as a group, we've started studies now to try to replicate this. But we, in this first study we did, we measured people before, right after, and a week after, because we didn't expect to find this signal with this acute IL-6 effect. Again, when I, when I started that study, I was much more under this idea that lowering inflammation is good. So that if we had some data already that ad, that heat was an antidepressant, so we just figured, well, it's going to lower inflammation chronically. It didn't. And which is really interesting, you know, it didn't have any long-term effects on any immune measures, but this, this acute, like, you know, you start 
before you put get in the sauna, your inflammation's down here. You know, you get out an hour and a half, two hours later, and now it's shot up here. That shoot up is what seems to be associated with longer term improvement in depression. But we don't know when the shoot up comes down. We don't know whether it came down in a day or a few hours. So that's one of the huge unanswered questions is how long did it last? And do we know anything about the mechanisms downstream of that IL-6 activation? Interesting. Uh, maybe a little bit. So again, the big caveat here is that we're talking about a single study that was not large. It was only 30 people. But there was it was randomized. We had a great sham that was very believable. Although other cytokines did not come up on a group level, on an individual level, some of the anti-inflammatory cytokines, IL-4 in particular, and IL-10, actually, the more they went up, the more undepressed people got on an individual basis, right? And so, you know, IL-6, I mean, not to delve into the, you know, the complexities of the immune system, which are beyond me, but IL-6 is, you know, it has both pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory properties. It activates IL-10. It's been associated with activating IL-4. That hasn't been as repeatedly observed. But our little theory is that what happens in, in hyperthermia, in heat, is very similar to what happens with exercise, which is you get this activation of IL-6 without an activation of these more inflammatory cytokines like interleukin-1-beta or TNF. And because of that, you avoid, you know, that IL-6 is it generally is activated by these kind of inflammatory bad guys, if I could put it that way. So when you get sick, first comes the IL-1 beta, then comes, you know, TNF, they pop up. IL-6 gets kicked in by them. And then IL-6 also has some anti-inflammatory properties. So it's important for activating these controlling cytokines so you don't die of sepsis or inflammation, you know, every time your immune system gets activated. But exercise does something different. It just goes straight to the IL-6. And so we think actually what's happening is that IL-6 in the context of heat or exercise is activating it an anti-inflammatory response. And that that explains why we saw the correlation with IL-4 and IL-10 IL-4 is especially interesting because there are a number of studies suggesting that that IL-4 activation it went in the body produces sort of neurotrophic effects in the brain. Uh, you know, in rodent studies, it activates BNF, BDNF in the hippocampus. So that's our kind of going theory. And do you have to do a lot of exercise? The more intensely you exercise, the more of this IL-6 activation you'll get. Right. So if you really want to get the spike, you got to go out running. Walking's not going to do it for you, probably. Right. You have to run up a mountain. Yeah. Yeah. When you put healthy adults on a treadmill uh, and make them run, IL-6 goes up. Really interesting. Now, I live by the sea and I swim in the sea daily. And of course, there's a lot of talk about the, you know, the beneficial effects of cold stress. Mm -hmm. Does that also have an effect on inflammation? You know, that's an interesting question. That has not been as closely studied, nor has cold stress as an antidepressant been as closely studied. You know, I, I'm interested in this. And in animal models, cold activates a lot of the same neural pathways into the brain that heat does from the skin. So we have had a, a belief that cold probably does have some of the same activation patterns as heat. I don't know whether it would have the same inflammatory activation, but but heat does more than inflammation. In animal models, it also has these sort of neural pathways by which it activates certain brain areas. And we suspect that it does that, that similar activation pattern, but nobody's ever studied it. And it's really interesting because, you know, so you're swimming in the sea and there's a guy named Wim Hof, you know, who's yeah. become quite famous in many circles as the Iceman. I met him once, wild, wild guy. <laughs> really interesting stuff. I mean, yeah. right, you, you jump in the glacier water right oh. now. And I know a lot of people swear by his technique in terms of helping with anxiety and low mood. And of course, you know, sauna bathers in, in Scandinavia have been doing hot and cold forever, but it really hasn't been looked at. It's really interesting. Nobody has done a randomized study where they take people and give them heat or heat plus cold. We're going to actually try to do that in the next couple of years to see in folks that are depressed, to see whether or not there is some sort of additional benefit from the cold. We don't know. I mean, anecdotally, you know, looking at or talking to the people here, there does seem to be a mood benefit to the cold, that cold sort of 
shock that and you know what's funny people kind of complain that the sea is not cold enough in the summer <laughs> in england oh <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know humans, we're funny animals yeah it's yeah. not enough of a stressor not unpleasant enough to make them feel better right well this is uh it's very interesting you know i i think one of the ways to think about what i'm interested in at the highest level is is this idea that we sometimes call adaptive stress it's been called hormesis but it's this idea that that when there are stressors that are bad for you, when they're too intense or too chronic, can actually have resilience building capacity when they're shorter and of a certain of a certain duration and severity, right? And so, you know, for instance, you know, if you exercise all the time, you don't get healthier, you get an overtraining syndrome, right? It, there's its U-shaped curve, right? And I think that's true for psychological stress. I think it's true for these physical stressors. Most of us in the modern world are protected from physical stressors. So they look like unqualified goods to us because most of us don't exercise too much or we don't spend too long in the sauna, you know, but it really is fascinating. And this is to your, Joe, this is to your point about the sea, right? Is that what people recognized is that that time-limited exposure to that thermo sort of thermoregulatory stressor builds resilience. It, it, you know, people, people feel better. Hello, everyone. It's me, Dr. Hannah Thurger. Apologies for interrupting the show, I promise I won't keep you too long. I wanted to remind you that drug science does not and will never take paid sponsorships or paid ads on the Drug Science Podcast, so don't worry, I'm not going to try and sell you anything. We feel that sponsorships would affect our ability to be impartial and corrupt our evidence-based mission. With that said, we're only able to continue making the show with your community donations. Community donors support our research into the harms of various drugs and discover how they might be used to help heal humankind. We're currently on tour up and down the country at various UK universities to help spread the word about some of our latest developments in drug science. By donating to drug science, you'll be able to attend all of our events completely free and we would love to meet you in person. Additionally, we're going to hold community exclusive events in 2023 including a Q&A podcast recording with Dave Nutt, Joe Neal and myself. So if you'd like to come on the show and ask us one of your burning questions, sign up now to become a member and we will let you know when that's happening. Finally, our most generous community donors will be invited to our prestigious end of year event at the House of Lords in Westminster. Right, now back to the show. Yeah, it certainly improves mood. And I must say... easier this winter than it was last winter that's a personal experience <laughs> it's not as cold or because you've been doing it longer the sea actually the sea it's interesting it doesn't never get all that cold six degrees celsius you know at the coldest and it's about 10 at the moment so it's not ice bathing i really don't fancy that but yeah it's very interesting so you've also done work with sleep deprivation i kind of never understood why that works for depression so yeah it's really interesting right it is true that we we used to do it a lot clinically you know it's one of there's a little list of things that i would really study if i was younger and had gazillions of dollars and they and they're all my interest is really in these adaptive stressors you know intermittent fasting sleep deprivation exercise cold exposure back on the inpatient service at ucla we would routinely sleep deprive people as a therapeutic strategy for people that are really catastrophically depressed and ucla had, had kind of pioneered some of this stuff and we know that it works about 50 percent of the time there's an interesting clue that it works best in people who are already having sleep problems right so you know the classic sleep disturbance of depression is you fall asleep but then you start waking up around two o'clock in the morning and you have this middle of the night or early morning awakening where you have these very dark moods, you know. It turns out that the antidepressant effect of sleep deprivation, it, it has to happen at exactly the same time period. So they, they've done studies where they've sleep deprived people in the first half of the night. It has no effect. You don't need to sleep deprive people all night. All you got to do is wake them up at 2 a.m. and keep them awake, right? So... This was actually Robert Post's idea a long time ago that maybe some of the symptoms of depression were failed compensatory efforts, right? That, you know, maybe depressed people start waking up, you know, in the early morning hours because, in fact, if you really stay up in the early morning hours, it produces an antidepressant effect. Maybe people with melancholia stop eating because, 
you know, eating can be depressogenic and fasting can be mood elevating. There's some interesting data on that, right? It's an interesting idea. Nobody ever really followed up on it to my knowledge, but that's one way of thinking about it. There's another way of thinking about it that's been written about really elegantly by one of my graduate students, a gentleman, a young guy named Ari Brower, who's written a paper that I think is brilliant with Robin Card Harris called Pivotal Mental States. And there's some evidence that all of these sort of things like sleep deprivation, fasting, heat, activate the, the 5-HD, the serotonin 5-HD2A receptor, which of course is the target of psychedelic agents. So he's got this interesting sort of holistic idea that that stressors act that stressors activate the 5-HC2A receptor and that, that can be either very good or very bad depending on context, but that there's a sort of unified mechanism. And so sleep deprivation also does that, as does illness, as does all sorts of things that produce sort of rapid changes in one's sort of emotive, perceptual, cognitive state. Now, the thing about sleep deprivation, the problem with it as an antidepressant strategy, though, is that when people fall back asleep, most of the time they lose the effect because sleep is depressing, right? Especially REM sleep is depressogenic. Oh, I didn't know that. Right. That's interesting. I just assumed all sleep was good and, you know, was very good for your mood. No, no, it's, 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 and, and you know, now there's these interesting sort of just naturalistic data that in older folks, if you sleep longer than eight hours a night, you're more likely to die also. That too little and too much in general is, is not good. No, you know, there were studies back in the day where they would sleep deprive people. They'd hook them up to a polysomnograph and every time they went into REM sleep, you know, rapid eye movement sleep, they'd wake them up. And, you know, people want to kill you by the end of the night, but it works as an antidepressant. So REM sleep, you know, and it kind of makes sense phenomenologically. I mean, there are people that have nothing but wonderful dreams. I'm not one of them, you know. I wouldn't want to live in the realm of my dreams, you know. The content is often dark, right? So, <laughs> so Charles, you mentioned psychedelics. Um, I'm sure our listeners love to hear more about your work with USONA and a little bit about USONA as a not-for-profit organization. Sure. So it's interesting, you know, my psychedelic work is sort of scattered around the goose pasture. I do, USONA is working on developing it as a treatment, but we do some really interesting work at UW, University of Wisconsin-Madison, on the role of consciousness in the transformative uh, effects of psilocybin. And then you mentioned, Joe, that I, I have this kind of interesting title of Director of Research on Spiritual Health at Emory University in Atlanta. And we've started a center down there called the Center for Psychedelics and Spirituality also very interested in this sort of these sort of mystical aspects of the psychedelic experience. But USONA is a fascinating thing. It is a it is a medical research organization. It is a nonprofit and yet it is a drug company. And we have been hard at work developing psilocybin as a treatment for major depression. Not for, you know, it's interesting, a lot of inter a lot of efforts are often made for treatment-resistant depression. So people that are sort of at the end of the line, they've failed everything. We've actually operated on this theory that psychedelics may be especially beneficial for people earlier in the course of depression before their brains have sort of been kind of locked into these more difficult states. So yeah, we have embarked on a a, a drug development program to do the kind of studies that if they're positive, would support FDA approval. And I think down the road, we hope uh, EMA and uh, MHRA approval in the UK for psilocybin, high dose psilocybin, right? So the kind of psilocybin where you do it, we use two facilitators, but you know, that you, you basically, you don't just put people in a room on a gurney and give them a big old dose of psilocybin. You, you prepare them for a number of hours beforehand. You have people with them through the dosing session. And then you do after the dosing, in the in the couple of weeks afterwards, you meet with them a few times, and and generally we do just really supportive psychotherapy. But you know, you're, you're there to help people figure out what the experience meant to them. So it's an interesting combined. It's a pharmacologic treatment, but it has these sort of therapeutic elements mixed up in it. And Charles, these people are mild, are they mildly or sort of moderate depression? Oh no, 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 no. We we take all comers. No. But I will tell you that all comers are pretty darn depressed. No, no, they're they're often very severely depressed. And of course, Usona is not the only. You know, it's a, it's an interesting story. When Usona started in two thousand fourteen, two thousand fifteen, 
in the drug development psychedelic space, there were two entities. There was USONA and something called MAPS, a multidisciplinary associate for psychedelic studies. MAPS was pursuing MDMA, which called ecstasy on the street for post-traumatic stress disorder. And USONA picked up the mantle of looking at psilocybin as a treatment for depression. And because these were old molecules in the public space, generally, we looked upon this as sort of public service work. Who but a nonprofit would want to do this? We did not foresee that there would be this explosion of commercial interest and billions of dollars flowing into this space. And at one point, like 80 companies were now trying to develop these and find little ways to get, you know, sort of intellectual property. There's been a a bit of a regression in that as people have begun to realize that it may not be so easy to make this fly. But yeah, we take all comers pretty much in the depressed world, and a lot of people are really depressed. But there's a big commercial entity, for instance, called Compass Pathways, which is based in the UK, and they're focusing specifically on treatment-resistant depression. So these are people that have failed, you know, multiple agents, you know, in the current depressive episode. And they get a strong response there, too. It, it, the response begins to fade a little bit over time, but, you know, you get one treatment and people feel better for weeks to months afterwards, which is, of course, very novel, right? There's no, there's nothing pharmacologically in the world of, of psychiatric mental health treatment where you, you do one treatment and then you feel better for protracted periods. I mean, in some studies. So like people that have cancer and are depressed about that, there are a couple of studies suggesting that the benefits can last for years where people just, you know, it changes their lives, which is why it's, it's just such a fascinating field, such a fascinating treatment. And is that a phase three trial with USONA? Phase three trials have not started yet with anybody except for MAPS. So the the, the, the folks that are working on MDMA for PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, they have completed one phase three study that was screamingly positive, and they finished enrollment on their second phase three study, I think in November. So we, I haven't heard the results yet, but they'll be coming shortly. So of all the agents, that's the one that's further along. So there's two phase three studies there. Compass is commencing phase three studies, I think, in the, in the near-term future, and all data that we have suggests that we will be doing the same thing, that it's looking very positive. That's so exciting, Charles. And the results are extraordinary, aren't they? They're extraordinarily good. Yeah, it's really quite striking. And of course, in the United States, there's this other thing going on, which is fascinating, which is this decriminalization, legalization. And there's now two states, Oregon and Colorado, that are actually set up the ability to use psilocybin, not pharmaceutical psilocybin, like what we do in our studies, but just mushrooms as treatments. It's complicated, but basically that's what it comes down to, where people can now shortly are going to be able to legally go to certain sort of centers and, you know, swallow mushrooms, have a psychedelic experience, have somebody sit with them to make sure they're safe. Will that be funded? Will, you know, how will that work? with the healthcare system, will it be part of your healthcare system? No, no, almost certainly not. It's certainly not in any time frame. I think, that any of us can see. No, because it's not FDA approved. And, and these agents are still federally illegal. So th- there's going to be some adventures, uh, but it's, it's wild. I mean, like in Oregon, you know, where this is set to start in the 2020, this year, you, people are building big retreat centers. I mean, it's a thing, you know, where there's this thought that a lot of people that are struggling with mental illness are going to come out to places like Oregon and, you know, do it ahead of FDA approval for these more like the way we're doing it at USONA through FDA approval. It's really, really exciting time. And it, there's such a an enormous need for a new approach to treating psychiatric illnesses, isn't there? And thinking of new approaches. What, how do you feel about the combining psychedelic therapy with other interventions such as meditation, the heat exposure, um, changes to diet, changes to exercise, taking more of a holistic approach to depression? Well, yeah, I mean, I, that's so to me, this is one of the holy grails in the field, right? And, and so in our academic work, we're trying to tee up studies that do that, basically, right? So, you know, you have a psychedelic experience, and let's say it works for you, and it's powerful, and you have this, this embodied, transformed sense of something where you look at the world differently now, and you feel less depressed, less anxious. But that effect does not last forever for most people. And in people with treatment-resistant depression, it doesn't seem to, it seems to last for couple months, right? So there was this, you know, famous study done in the UK at Imperial College by Robin Card Harris and David Nutt, who 
not with us today, but you know, what they observed was that people got a big response and then over time it began to fade. And eventually I, I think, you know, almost the people in that study, everybody kind of relapsed. So there's a woman named Rosalind Watts, who's a very famous therapist in this area, also in the UK, who really teed into this, a colleague of ours, and has set up a whole program for people around the world that, and especially people in clinical trials, to try to find ways to sustain the effect. Because, you know, commercial entities are saying, well, we expect that people with chronic depression are going to need two to three psychedelic treatments a year. That's very different than giving people a treatment, you know, and then doing things where maybe they don't need another treatment for a year or for longer, right? You know, so I think a lot of us, and one of the interesting things about USONA being a nonprofit is we we don't have that profit drive where you got to sell a bunch of drugs, you know. We're especially interested in this question of like, what can you do to enhance and extend the therapeutic benefit of a high dose of psilocybin or, or any other psychedelic? And you're right, there's a lot of them, right? And so there's some evidence for meditation. Franz Vollenweider did that in Switzerland. We don't know about heat, but we suspect heat activates some of the same pathways. There's a number of sort of options. And psychedelics, and this is something that that Roland Griffiths and the crew observed at Hopkins in their early studies of healthy volunteers, that there's something about the psychedelic experience in many people that makes them want to eat healthier, exercise, pick up a meditation practice. So it may be that psychedelics prime people if those things were available in a way that they could uptake, that they may prime people to actually engage with them, and that might be a way of extending the effects. It's, it's, just a, it's one of the major questions in the psychedelic field. And Charles, you've been doing some work with 5-MeO-DMT as well as psilocybin, haven't you? Yes, USONA has launched a development program for 5-MeO-DMT. That's correct, right? And I haven't done academic work with it. You know, it, it's just now coming into, there's a lot of interest in it. And there's several entities that are trying to develop it commercially because it's a very different molecule, right? It, it, it actually has a different pharmacologic profile. It more strongly targets another serotonin receptor, something called the 5-HT1A receptor. It produces a different phenomenologic effect. The founder of USONA often refers to 5-MeO-DMT as a transcendelic, not a psychedelic, because very often what happens is, it's depending on how you, you take it, if, if you smoke it or, or insufflate it, if you come in that way, you know, it comes on within three or four seconds. Boom! And people are often shot up into this sort of ego dissolution kind of white space of awareness without content. And that's different than psilocybin. For most people, things like psilocybin, there's a lot of sort of personal story and narrative and emotional stuff. The 5-MeO during the acute experience, for many people, is just like, whew, gone. And many people find that utterly transformative. They can't see the universe the same way afterwards. I've known people that have struggled with it because uh, it's pretty frightening to essentially vanish as, a, as an individual entity. But many of us think that there might be some really unique therapeutic potential there. And do you think there'd be specific subsets and think, of, of patients that might sorry, benefit from it in the same way you have these subsets of patients who benefit from antidepressants compared to others? It must be the case, right? I mean, we know from, you know, we know from studies already that there is a subgroup of people that do not benefit from psychedelics. And almost certainly there's going to be people that are going to be harmed. There's a beautiful article written by a woman named Rachel Peterson, who is a, she's a theologian at Harvard, who was in the, uh, one of the Hopkins depression studies, who had a very difficult second psychedelic experience. And she's written about it beautifully and how, what upended her whole world in ways that were not easy. You see the same thing with meditation, right? There's a whole, Willoughby Britton at Brown has a, a whole center for studying harms with meditation. All these things can have harms. Now, the, the, the holy grail, of course, is to identify predictive biomarkers. And we were talk, we, we've been talking about this in this podcast. We've been looking for that in psychiatry forever. And frankly, the only one that really looks promising is the CRP, you know, for, for standard antidepressants. We don't know. There's some evidence that the genetic form you have of the serotonin receptor, the 5-HC2A receptor, may influence the character or the intensity of the acute psychedelic experience. And the character of the acute psychedelic experience has been so often associated with longer-term benefit that we may see that there's a genetic predictor, right? That, that if you have one form of the gene for that receptor, maybe you're more likely to respond. We, 
these are these sort of questions. We're going to know more about this, though, in the next few years because, you know, we have an interest in that. I'm sure all these other drug development companies will also have an interest in that because, of course, if you could identify people that are really likely to respond, then you could target the treatment to them. Yeah. And that would, you know, you'd, you'd lose some people that you would get if you just did it willy-nilly, but you'd be much more likely to get a better outcome. And so, you know, the, this vision of precision medicine is pretty strong in, in mental health. So we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We don't know yet. And it must be getting closer. We must be getting towards that, mustn't we? Well, we, we need to try. Yeah. I mean, it's because drug approval, and I assume it's the same in Europe, although I, I really only know the U.S. well. But in the U.S., the Food and Drug Administration adheres to these old DSM, ICD-10 diagnostic categories like schizophrenia, depression, bipolar disorder. And that, so the, they, they know perfectly well that these are completely heterogeneous conditions, you know, that do not have an underlying consistent neurobiology. But nonetheless, that's the rule book, right? And so, and they have a mandate to have treatments be available to the widest group of people possible. So their mandate is actually the opposite in many ways of this more sort of focused, let's identify subgroups or let's identify mechanisms. And, you know, it's a very noble thing to want to treat the widest group of people possible. But I fear that that has caused a great deal of missed opportunity in terms of trying to narrow in on on these more specific things. I mean, cancer has made incredible, oncology has made jaw-dropping advances. And they've done it because they figured out mechanisms. You know, like we talk about in this paper, you know, it turns out that tumors in very different parts of the body can have exactly the same mechanism, even though they look different. And tumors in the same place can be totally different, right? So once you have a mechanism, you say, oh, this tumor has a biomarker, and that biomarker causes this to happen. And I, I've got a drug that turns off that thing that happens. And when I have that drug in a tumor with that biomarker, boom, miracle cure. And the tumor could be in the brain or the gut or the leg. You know, it's you're beginning to understand, oh, this is the mechanism of the pathology. And, you know, whether that is possible for mental disorders in a way that's going to be powerful in the near future, don't know. But if we don't at least try, it's hard to imagine that we're going to make a huge amount of progress. Absolutely. And I know Carol Tominga's been doing work in this area, hasn't she, with people with a diagnosis of schizophrenia and bipolar, but looking at cognitive function and kind of treating people according and that's that's such a clever approach i think for psychiatry looking at behavioral biomarkers yes. as well as you know physiological biomarkers i guess we need a combination of both yes absolutely but you're right because if you can find reliable behavior biomarkers then they're often more tractable you know i mean there's some interesting biomarkers with brain scans but what are you going to put a brain scan down at your local drugstore? Probably not, right? So it, it, it's not it's not clinically feasible, you know, and that becomes a real limiting factor. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So there's one thing Hannah and I wanted to talk to you about that we haven't covered. It's just about depression mm -hmm. as an illness and about the from an evolutionary perspective. I know you've written a bit about this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. My thinking goes like this. I, I have a bias. I tend to, I, evolution informs the way I look at the world. And I tend to be more on the adaptationist side where I think that many things in the world are actually performing some function. So, you know, the genes that promote depression have been slippery to find. You know, now with these huge data sets we've identified, you know, a bunch of them each has very, very little effect. But obviously, there's some genetic component to depression. And What's interesting is that depression all around the world, it's what happens to people when they, when they come under adversity. And so to my way of thinking, you know, depression must be paying its freight. That, you know, why is it, why isn't it the case that when adversity happens, people cheer up and they say, all right, then I'm going to be proactive. What a great opportunity to expand myself, right? Be, you know, because when you see people do that, so often it's beneficial, right? Why is it that, on the other hand, that, that from hunter-gatherers down in the Amazon to, you know, the titans of Wall Street, why is it that when adversity strikes, people tend to get depressed and anxious? And I think it's because, I think there's a couple of reasons, but at the core, I think it's because 
that response promoted survival and reproduction sufficiently for risks for depression to remain in the genome. And, you know, most of our genes have gone to fixation. So, you know, most of us share the same forms of genes. You know, there's only some genes that are actually have these sort of polymorphic things. And I suspect that there are many genes that have gone to fixation, so we can't identify a genetic variant because we've all got more or less the same thing. But they've gone to fixation that promote this response to adversity because overall it was adaptive. So then the question becomes, in what ways could it possibly be adaptive? And I have suggested, and this is not just my idea, this is sort of current in thinking from evolutionary psychology stuff, is that depression is sort of a warning signal. You get depressed when the world is telling you that you were at risk of failing to survive and reproduce. And that in particular, not so much, for instance, especially reproduction. I mean, there are people who get depressed because they can't have kids. That's true. But but really what it is is that that you're failing at these sort of proximal mechanisms by which humans across, you know, probably hominids across millions of years have in general optimized their survival and reproduction. So, you know, all species behave. They have these sort of proximal things that they unquestionably pursue, mating, eating. In humans, things like attaining status, having safety, having social connections that are supportive, having agency in your life that you influence the hearts and minds of others. There's a lot of data, and this is where anthropology comes into play. There's a lot of data that in all societies, individuals who optimized those tendencies, those abilities, were more likely to survive and reproduce. And so, you know, humans don't generally, I mean, we all want to survive, but what we really focus on is attaining status, you know, attaining food, attaining safety. And the reason we pursue those from this perspective is because, because that is what you need to do as a human being to optimally survive and reproduce on average. And so it's like advertising. Evolution uses that same strategy of it's going to make us, you know, we're willing to kill for these proximal goals that we that we really don't examine. They're just unqualified goods. And what happens with depression is you tend to get depressed when the world's telling you that you're failing, that you've either lost those goods or you're about to lose those goods. And so this is why I think from this perspective, you see that there's a list of psychological things that are especially likely to make people everywhere depressed. And they have a lot to do with losing status, losing connection, being in dangerous situations. And this, the inflammation fits into this because, you know, the reason that from this perspective that inflammation tends to make people depressed when it's chronic is because it's the body's signal that you're going to die, that you're sick, you're not going to survive, you're not going to reproduce. And if you look at most mammalian species, especially ones that are hierarchical, you know, when you're sick, you're really at risk. You're at risk of being, if you're a prey animal, you're at risk of being eaten because you're easy prey. If you are a carnivore or any animal that's in a social hierarchy, you're at risk of being displaced. So Andy and I have written a paper, which we wanted to call Sleeping with One Eye Open, because to circle back to what we found that inflammation does, it suppresses you know, sort of the pleasure center in the brain. But the other thing it does is it activates the danger center in the brain, right? So it activates areas in the brain that make you anxious. And so there's this sort of give and take between when you're, when you're inflamed, you want to rest and recover and sort of slow down so that you can put all your energy into fighting the infection. But no good fighting the infection if you're going to be eaten while you're laying there, right? So it, nature sort of splits the difference. You get this weird mixture. But it's the same thing. And so another way of thinking about this at the highest level is that depression evolved and has been retained in our genome because it's a way of dealing with other beings. And the other beings that are really relevant are other humans, conspecifics, and the world of the very small, the world of the microbes. And in all cases, you see that you know depression probably has adaptive signaling capacity. Certainly, we've written that in the context of infection, Sickness is clearly evolved to help us survive, and depression has so many things in common physiologically and behaviorally with sickness that we've suggested that perhaps that depression evolved out of sickness to some degree. So anyway, that long, complex, but it's, a, it's, it's something that's just endlessly fascinated me and fascinated those of us that I work at, and it fits with this idea, right, that you, you know, depression didn't come out of nowhere. It actually serves an adaptive purpose, just like pain does, you know. Yeah, yeah, it it really is a fascinating uh, consideration, isn't it, to where depression came from, and you know the 
potential evolutionary advantage of those those kind of behaviors and retreating responses. At one time, we tried to set up an animal model for depression using small primates, marmosets, new world primates, because they have a hierarchical social structure and inducing loss of social status in the dominant animal, where our hypothesis was that that animal would start to show, you know, behaviors and physiology of relevance to depression. That was, uh, yeah, a fun, interesting project. It's a very interesting perspective, I think. So for all our listeners, we will put all the, you know, all the research that you've mentioned, Charles, into the show yeah. notes. So you'll all be able to read more about this because these are fascinating topics. And Charles, we're so grateful to you for spending the time with us to talk about, about well, we've covered quite a, a bit, range of topics, have. but I guess really quite a bit, Charles. I would say we've got our money's <laughs> worth. <laughs> yeah, well, great. It'll be great questions. A lot of fun. So it's, and it's a really lots to think about, lots of research to be done. And I can start do, trying to do some research on the cold water swimmers here. <laughs> that would be, that would be interesting. But it's, I think, kind of given us such a broad overview of depression and really new insights. So, listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this as much as, as I have. So, Charles, I just have one very final question for you. I had a look at your book, and I see that it's dedicated to two of your primary school teachers. I think that's that's interesting. Yeah, well, two people that you know, one being Andy Miller, who sort of taught me science, and the other being a long, long time colleague of mine who was a sort of very gifted, psychologically minded person who played a huge role in setting me off in terms of thinking about, you know, these sort of deeper questions about about psychology and what it means to try to live an optimal life and how do you deal with, you know, the sort of things that, that stand in the way of that. So yeah, they were, you know, in my life, they were my two primary teachers. That's marvelous. I really, really like that. And I normally ask people about a mentor and you've talked about Andy mm -hmm. Miller, actually. So that's fantastic. So yeah, just remains for us really, Charles, to say a massive thank you to you. Thank you very much, Charles. Thanks for having me. That was fun. Yeah, yeah it was cool. I enjoyed it. <laughs>